to the great work radio program. The great work radio and blog are features of Jesse Ward's website and can be accessed at jessiewar.com. That's J E S S E W A U G H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoy today's program. This is episode three of the Charming Intention series on the great work. Hello and welcome to the Great Work radio program. I'm Jesse Waugh. I recently attended a graduate conference at the University of Cambridge in England, which was entitled Charming Intentions, Occultism, Magic, and the History of Art. It was organized by Daniel Zamani, who is a PhD candidate at Trinity College, Cambridge, and Dr. Alexander Marr. The two-day conference was set up to, quote, investigate the intersections between visual culture and the occult tradition, ranging from the material culture of primitive animism through medieval and renaissance depictions of witchcraft and demonology to contemporary fascination with the supernatural in popular culture. It is a rare thing for the subject, which could be colloquially referred to as occult symbology, to be the focus of a scholarly conference at a top university. And as such, I was more than enthusiastic to attend. This and several following episodes of the great work feature rudimentary recordings of a number of the lectures. Please bear in mind that the quality of the audio is lacking and also that the speakers refer to various images, icons, and objects which are not presented along with the audio. Most works mentioned should be accessible using an image search. Judith Noble of Arts University College, Bournemouth, gave an excellent talk on ritual and invocation, occultism in the films of Maya Darren and Kenneth Anger. Check out my films, which are of a not dissimilar genre to those of Kenneth Anger and Maya Darren at jessiewa.com under films. A network of people who are interested in the occult, in the mythic, and in the fantastic. Uh, but it's now time for our last panel of the 20th century. Elizabeth Upper, who just uh, passed her viva with bravura last week, um, was immediately taken ill afterwards. And uh, is down with flu, so um, she was replaced in the last minute by Gabriel Bing, who does fantastic research on the economic superstructure of cathedral building. Quite as a tarot to me. Um, under the supervision of Professor Paul Binsky, and he's going to convene the paper on the 20th century. So please join me in welcoming Gabriel Bing. Thank you. I do feel like a very poorly qualified replacement for Mr. Lapper, so um, I have to apologise for that and ask for your um, forgiveness. And that's not the only change to what's on your schedule. So not only do you have Gabriel Banks and Elizabeth Lapper, but you also have a different order of, of papers being given. So the first one's going to be what is like the last one on your schedule by Judith Noble, who uh, teaches at the Arts University College in Bournemouth. Um, but for reasons of flooding and train schedules, it's going to be speaking first. Um, on art, invocation and alchemy, the tarot paintings of Lady Frida Harris. So, uh, sorry, no, 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 I fell for my own, okay, okay. This is would never made this mistake. Um, yeah. So in fact, we're talking about ritual, in, am I going to right? Ritual invocation. It's up there. It's okay. It's on the screen. range across the work of two filmmakers and look at seven films. We're tempted to do so in 20 minutes. And I should say that frequently when I talk about this work, I'm usually talking to audiences of filmmakers or film studies people 
who know the films. You have, most of you, I think, have not seen the work of these filmmakers, and I can't show you the films today. They're too long. So I hope this will act as a taster, which will encourage you to go and seek out the films yourself. Now, this is P. Adam Sidney, the great theorist of American avant-garde film. He says, the central tradition of American avant-garde film begins with a dream unfolded within, within shifting perspectives. Much of the subsequent history of that tradition will move towards a metaphysics of cinematic perspective itself. Uh, American avant-garde, or underground film, flourished between the 1940s and the 1970s. It was practiced by artists, filmmakers working outside the commercial Hollywood and indeed any kind of uh, film industry and working with very, very limited means. These filmmakers were mainly not concerned with conventional narrative but rather explored films of physical and temporal medium. They were also um, concerned with the interior world of the filmmaker and an exploration of the nature of consciousness through film. Sorry, I'm not very good here. At the beginning of Underground Film were two filmmakers, Maya Deren and Kenneth Anger, for whom magic and the occult were essential principles, embodied not only in the content, but also in the form and structure of their works. In this paper, I'm going to propose that Deren and Anger made major contributions to the development of an occult cinema, and that their films should be considered as magical artefacts. This aspect of the work has been massively overlooked in, in, in consideration by film scholars. So they appear at first glance to be very different. Uh, Maya Deren, this is a, um, a list of the key films there, and a bit of biographical information there, uh, could be categorised as a cool, dispassionate classicist. Classicist was her dis own description of herself, and Anger as a rather kind of glorious, decadent colourist. Um, in, in, uh, those are the three films by Anger I'll be looking at today and some key characteristics of his life and work. Um, but on closer examination, they share some of the common characteristics of 20th century occult artists. For example, each rejected their given name and adopted a new name, and in Anger's case a whole persona, which expressed their occult and artistic ideals. Each lived their work, appeared in their own films, and for each, the making of the films was in itself a magical ritual. Darren's occultism was implicit in her work. Angers is ex explicit in both his work and life. If Darren, as Sheldon Renan said, is the mother of the underground film, then Anger is surely its demon brother. So, if we look at Maya Darren, and I can't, I haven't got time to give you much biographical information today, Darren became a voodoo initiate in Haiti in 1947, and it's been assumed uh, that the magical aspects of her films are a result of her commitment to voodoo. This is deeply problematic because Darren made all her key films before her interest in voodoo developed. So an analysis of Meshes of the Afternoon, Outland and Ritual in Transfigured Time and the Unfinished Witch's Cradle suggests to me rather that she was well-versed in Kabbalah and Western ritual magic. One of her apparent sources was Francis Barrett's The Magus, and her extensive uh, film theoretical writings contain frequent references to the magical, the ritualistic, and the occult. There's just one short piece from her notebooks. The artist is the magician who, by his perception of the powers and laws of the non-apparent, 
exercises them upon the apparent, but the phases of magic are two. He must not only discover the hidden, the obscure laws, he must be able to summon them into the realm of the real. And this is the title card from her later film, um, The Very Eye of Night, which she drew herself, which gives you some idea of where she was going. Her interest in occultism can be traced back to the late 1930s. In 1939, she worked as a researcher and secretary to wife writer William Seabrook, who many of you will know, uh, he, he had worked with Alistair Crowley in the US in 1919 and co co contributed uh, articles to the Surrealist Journal Document, edited by Bataille. He was a writer of very populist books, rather shocking, you know, populist books on magic, psychic phenomena and cannibalism. Darren did research for his book, Witchcraft, Its Power in the World Today, and following this accepted an invitation to participate in what Seabrook described as experiments in extracentric extra perception at his isolated home in upstate New York, um, where he um, had uh, invaded a series of young women into doing all sorts of things that involved being naked, experiencing pain and discomfort for prolonged periods of time, and spending time in, in a witch's cradle, which he had reconstructed from descriptions of the early modern witch craze. And this is, um, this is a, a replica of the Seabrook's Witch's Cradle, which um, was, is from the archives of the Museum of Witchcraft of Boscastle. Unfortunately, it no, no longer exists. It was destroyed by floods in the year <coughs> And uh, when Darren realised what was going on, she challenged uh, Seabrook about this, refused to participate in the experiments and left. But she would actually later put the knowledge of witchcraft and the occult that she gained while researching his book to good use and gave one of her films the title Witch's Cradle. And she also worked closely with the graphic designer and occultist Arvin Lustig, who appeared in her film Land. So, this is... Meshes of the Afternoon, her first film. This is perhaps the most well-known image um, that, that, that many people recognise from Meshes. It depicts the interior dream world of its female protagonist, who's played by Darren herself, that is Darren there. At the conclusion of the film, her dream reality fuses disastrously with the world of the everyday. Links can be drawn back to the work of the surrealist filmmakers, especially Cocteau, but Darren's objectives were very different. There's no attempt at naturalism or conventional narrative, but the film has a very ordered, repetitive structure, unlike surrealist work. And its, its symbolism has very strong personal logic. Uh, references to the dream world are explicit, and the protagonist is ultimately destroyed in the waking world by her dream. It's the sense of the other, interior world, with its visionary logic, expressed both through the content but also the structure that defines this film. Meshes has been described as a quest for sexual identity. Viewed from an occult perspective, it seems rather to express notions of gender polarity in its edgy, combative, erotic relationship between the protagonist and her male lover, who appears on the surface to represent order and rationality, but is also seen as a disruptive transgender figure at points in the film. If I go back to the beginning, um, that, that is the male um, protagonist of, of Meshes of the Afternoon. Darren then made Witch's Cradle, um, and this is later in 1943. Um, she left it unfinished, but she did exhibit it extensively during her lifetime, so it's, I think we should have a look at it. And this is, this is um, a note that she wrote, a programme note that she wrote 
um, for Witch's Cradle, which I think is fairly self-explanatory. Um, she, she was very friendly with some of the surrealist artists who'd left Europe for New York at the outbreak of World War II, uh, uh, very, very friendly with Ernst uh, during the war, and she also played chess regularly with Marcel Duchamp. And th this film was made at night time in the, a, a surrealist exhibition at Peggy Guggenheim's Art of the Century Gallery. So in this film, after very brief images of Duchamp and the disembodied beating sheep's heart, uh, we see Anne uh, Clark Matter, who at the time was married to Cyrillus Painter Matter, um, who's the main protagonist. She has this uh, legend in the pentagram around her forehead, which says the end is the beginning. It's written so it appears endlessly. She interacts in the darkened gallery with um, sculptures and installations from the exhibition, some of which take on a life of their own. So it refers to in the text that we looked at and uh, she, she's terrified by them. It's very possible that Darren took that text, The End is the Beginning, um, from T.S. Eliot's East Coco, the four-four text had been published several weeks before she shot this film. It's probably her mind. And her notes for the film contain drawings of, uh, of ritual magic talismans taken from Barracks and Magus. This in, they include talismans for the spirit and intelligence of Saturn and the spirit of Jupiter relating respectively, as I'm sure you'd be aware, to the Sephira of, of, of Bina and Hesed and the Kabbalah. And Saturn, as we've seen, has been associated over the centuries with the melancholic creative the tra trance of the artist, so it would be a very appropriate choice for this film. Um, she also <laughs> made notes in two magical alphabets, the Theban script and the characters of celestial writing. Um, she then um, went on to make that land. Um, and land begins where Mesha's left off, if you like, it's the second part of a trilogy. A female protagonist, Darren again, is washed up on a beach and she has to deal with the external world. And after witnessing a chess game, uh, where the, the, the person playing is Alvin Lustig, in which pieces move of their own volition, she pursues a chess piece through a series of landscapes and interiors. At one point she tries to keep up with a man who morphs into a sequence of other men. Eventually she finds two women on a beach playing chess. She steals the White Queen, i.e. herself, from their game and escapes with it. After a sequencing, which we see her in all the early stages of the film, watching her own escape, the film ends with her running on the edge of the sea. And this is her um, program note for Atlanta. And it gives us a very interesting insight into her views about ritual metamorphosis, etc. Again, what she's done here is to create a, a very powerful but discontinuous narrative with a strong cult logic. The protagonist can act with the universe in accordance with her will, but she must tap into the essential nature of the universe and work with it, uh, if not against it, in order to succeed. Here's um, Darren. Um, sorry, I've got the date of the making of this film is 1943, but the release date is 1944. Um, this is where she's about to steal the White Queen from two women playing chess, having kind of lulled them rather erotically into a, a smi nice, smiley state. The protagonist is, she's born from the sea into this alien world of Earth, and she has to learn its rules and meet its challenges before stealing back her own self. And then she escapes with it, I think, very... This is, this is the final image of the film. 
she escapes with it, she runs along the seashore, the, the, this great liminal space, the exact, you know, but always shifting meeting place between earth and water. Um, then, um, so the sequencing, the key sequence is the one in which we see all her past selves watching her running into her future in possession of her own self. Very reminiscent of the Moon Tarot card, whose meaning indicates that the occult initiate has journeyed from the very earliest of times through all stages of evolution and will continue to do so until her journey is completed and she's achieved union with, with the divine. Um, the protagonist of the of that land uses the, the magic of time and space in a way that can only be created by cinema to steal back her own self and journey onwards. And then Ritual in Transfigured Time, the, the final piece of the trilogy, is the third, this third and final film. She described it as being about the nature and process of change. And these again are some of her, her programme notes for the film, which um, give us a, the first that gives us a sort of insight into her um, attitude towards occult concepts in the second um, to what she was trying to achieve in terms of making films that were also rituals. So this film is an initiatory journey. It's the passage from widow to bride. Its protagonist, dressed as a bride but in black, is played this time both by Darren and also by black dancer Rita Cristiani. Um, she, the, the, here the, uh, we see uh, Cristiani's hand. She is the protagonist at the moment. And we see Darren in the background. Um, the central imagery is drawn from mythology. Um, prominent in this are three fate, female fates or norns or graces drawn from classical Norse mythology. Um, the, the, the widow bride encounters the first of the fates winding the wall, the thread of her life. After take, sort of taking part in this process, she makes, meets another fate in the role of initiator or guide, played by Anais Nin, who ushers her through a doorway. Um, this again is liminal space, the threshold. The widow bride is then in the midst of a large party. She encounters a man who's attracted to her and tries to follow her through a crowd of dancers. The sequence is meticulously choreographed through editing. The dancers move through a series of repetitive patterns, each ending in a freeze frame. Eventually, on the final freeze frame, man and bride touch. Um, the film then cuts, jump cuts to a colonnaded exterior where man and bride form a ritualised dance enactment of the sacred marriage with the three, three fates now transformed into graces in the background. The, the bride then flees from the man who pursues her. She runs into the sea, passing the initiatory guide as she does so and Christiane is transformed into Darren. She rushes into the water, sinks beneath the waves, and becomes Christiane again, and at this point the film is transformed into negative, so the black widow's clothes become a white bridal gown, and she opens her eyes and lifts her veil and marries the sea. So the protagonist in this film has united the dark and light halves of herself. The three fatal graces will suggest quite strongly the triad of goddesses <coughs> encountered in various, various mythologies. And viewed as a whole, these three films, Meshes, Atland and Ritual, suggest a sequence of three Kabbalistic initiations. In the first film, the individual enters the interior world and travels through it. In the second, she uses the knowledge she's gained on her interior journey to negotiate the external world and gains mastery of herself. In the final film, she experiences the cycle of existence in a primeval rite of passage from birth 
through life to death and back to life again. And Darren's extraordinary achievement was for the first time in the history of cinema to express complex occult subject matter through the form and structure of her films as well as their contents. Mm. Um, I'm going to move on very quickly to Ken's anger and I may have to just talk about one of the films. I don't think there'll be time to look at the lot, but I'll show you the images. Um, I spent a year testing Kenneth Anger's contention that every frame of his films had a cult leaning. Um, at the end of the year, I was nearly mad. I thought, <laughs> I thought I would disprove this contention because Anger's well known for telling stories and blagging interviewers, particularly those who are very naive about the occult. But I have to say he was right. Um, so I examined his films in painstaking detail, which I don't have time to look through today, in the, in the light of uh, the work of Alistair Crowley, who's this great reference point. And it's true, he did actually do it. Even one or two flash frame images had, had meaning and could be related really closely to, to Crowley's work. So what, I, what I'm going to suggest is that Anger... Um, who made his first film in 1947 and his last in 1981, developed a uniquely cinematic magical practice in which fi films function both for their maker and their audiences as magical rituals, and they are in themselves magical artefacts. And I think I'll, I'll focus for now on the first of his really magical films, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, which was made in 1954, and doesn't represent what most people know for, which is his involvement with the 60s counterculture, the Rolling Stones, etc. But we'll focus on that. So he's born in 1927 in Santa Monica. His interest in magic and the work of Crowley developed in his teens, and he was part of the notorious Agape Lodge of the Ordo Templi Orientis, led by physicist Jack Parsons. And his work is located very firmly within the Western occult tradition. Um, it's, it's inspired by Crowley, with all Crowley's references back to the Golden Dawn. Um, so, and what, what Anger is doing with his work is using Crowley as a basis to create a system of, of correspondences, of magical correspondences, which can only exist in cinema and on film. But he does more than that. He's not just simply illustrating <coughs> the work of Crowley. He's creating his own, his, his, his own magical mythos based around his personal deity, Lucifer. Um, so he, and he, what's it crucial about Anger? This is a, a, fan, a 1990s fanzine portrait of Anger. It's a great occult following. This is rather lovely. Um, and this is inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. But what's crucial about him is that he deploys all the elements of filmmaking to magical effect. And this is especially evident in his use of light and colour. It's also apparent in the way that he directs his actors, who don't speak but use their eyes and gestures to convey meaning. His use of the off-screen glance is especially marked. He uses it to suggest the presence of the unseen world of spirits and magic. And in his direction, he shows us the magical technique of invocation, one of the fundamentals of occult practice. Deities are drawn down into his actors who become magical presences invoked by and for the film. And there are some key, couple of key tropes in his work which reinforce its occult dimension. One which is used in all his films is the image of a character awakening from sleep. In Anger's world, this signifies that the character has left the world of the everyday and awoken into the interior world of magic, reversed of the normal. Dark and enclosed interiors are used to reinforce a sense of separation from the main mundane world 
and sets are made labyrinthine claustrophobic to convey a sense of the interior journey. So this is inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, uh, a film ritual to Pan in which deities are invoked and which culminates in the orgiastic sacrifice of Pan. And um, his, one of his key sources of inspiration for this is Crowley's Gnostic Mass. Um, and it, it, the film is entitled, is subtitled in its current version, Lord Shiva's Dream, and the observance amongst you will notice that the initials of that spell out LSD. And it may possibly be the first film to feature the use of entheogens. The ingestion of substances is the marked theme. Shiva, the main character, ingests jewels before smoking a joint. He ingests gifts, which various deities bring for him, grapes, a snake, pearls, etc. And the deities drink from... Um, Exotic goblets, of course, in Crowley's Gnostic Mass, the sacrament was sexual fluid. Eventually, Pan becomes the Eucharist and is consumed um, by the, the deities. This is, the this is Aeneas Nin, who's the link between Darren and Anger as a starter the new goddess. Um, the subtitle also implies that the film is a ritual in which the central character causes the other characters to appear through invocation. The characters look direct to camera in an intense manner, and their gazes, at once focused and distant, will be familiar to anyone who has experienced the cult ritual in which invocation has taken place. These are not actors performing, deities present in them. Their gestures and movements are slow, deliberate, and hieratic. Shiva's gestures are taken from ritual magic. Um, Crowley's magic in theory and practice is very much the inspiration for that. Um, Superimposed images of the deities are intercut with single shots of Shiva's face in close up. As the film climaxes, we see this happening here. The identities of the characters break down and melt into one another. And then Shiva makes a ritualistic hand gesture like this, and the image of all the other characters is subsumed back into a single image of him. There are many references to Harris and Crowley's Thoth Tower in the film. Um, the, that, that, that refers both to the Rider Wake tag, but also very much to the Thoth Tires, I'm sure you've seen later talk. And the other key thing about it is that, is that the use of colour is absolutely central to it. Colour is created at the start of the film through objects, costume, and lighting, but as the film proceeds, that's replaced by colour created through the use of filters in the printing process and through multi layered superimposition. So the colours at first solid but becomes luminous and transparent and pure light. And in his later films, Angle, uh, particularly Invocation of My Demon Brother and Lucifer Rising, which I just don't have time to look at really today, um, Angle would go on to do very intensive, detailed work on the idea of Lucifer as the deity of light, the representation of light, and all the magical correspondences created with that, but I think we'll have to leave it there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Judith, for a fascinating, um, fascinating paper. I don't know if I could uh, kick things off by asking you to talk a little bit more about the relationship between um, uh, Darren and, and um, Seabrook, and this, you know, there's obviously... Yeah. Because clearly um, what she saw was enough to put her off him, but not enough to put her off the occult more no, generally, no, or even not at all. violence yeah. and destruction and eroticism and sex mm. in the context of the occult. Yeah. No, she she um, 
she, she was an incredibly forceful, feisty character, and you can't imagine anyone swaying her from her purpose. I mean, she, she died very young at the age of, uh, at the age of 44 in 1961, because since the, uh, the Second World War, she'd been using amphetamines habitually, um, you know, freely available, quite legally during the war, because she didn't, she, she didn't want to waste time sleeping. So, you know, she, she, she just took life to great extremes. And the relationship between Seabrook is fascinating. It's very much there in, in, in the documentation of her life, but no one's really bothered to look at it. And um, she, she, um, she did four months of research. She met him at Martha's Vineyard. She did four months of research on the book on witchcraft. And I, I don't know because none of Seabrook's notes on that survived. So we can't analyse how much of that is due to... Um, her input, but it certainly gave her a really thorough grounding subject. There's, uh, in, in my notes, I have a, uh, her copies of her correspondence. She writes in a very detailed way about this subsequent encounter with him where he wanted her to participate in extrasensory perception experiments. And she, she, she started to get cold feet on the way there when the taxi driver took her from from the, the station said, oh, you're the latest one. <laughs> and he's had a whole series of very, they had to be attractive young women, women to do these things. And she describes in great, this in great detail. She was very repelled by it. But she also describes it with great sort of humour and panache. So even in the description of what must have been a terrifying experience, she's very much in control, not just of the situation, but the description. So Seabrook says, well, I want you to... Um, do a written agreement that you'll be in a cage naked for 10 hours standing on tiptoe and you can't break you'll be beaten if you break this agreement uh, in, and she asks him why and he sort of hedges around and tries to discuss it to, to, to justify it in occult terms and she says no you know you just really this is about your own sexual gratification isn't it and he admits this and she's right I'm going home tomorrow and she's staying in a room at his house locked herself in the room her description of the event and ends with this very humorous uh, little incident. She, she loved cats, her house was always full of cats, and so she's locked herself in this bedroom, ready to escape back to the station the next morning and spends the night with one of his cats masturbating all over her bed. Which is. Um, on that note. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can't, yeah. I mean, um, just to think a little bit about the political strategies. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Um, the political <laughs> strategies of the film, yeah. um, you know, used to be a cult. You pointed out in one of the earlier slides that Darren was a pioneer in gay cinema. No, that's Anger. Oh, Anger, sorry. Yeah. I was just wondering to what extent in those films and the occult was used to, you know, create or deconstruct a queer mythology. In, in, in Anger's films? Yeah, um, in, in Darren's films, not. When I began looking at Darren's films 30 years ago and looking at them from a very feminist perspective because she was one of the few female filmmakers who worked in the avant-garde tradition and, and, and she was the first American avant-garde filmmaker in that phase. So I, I wouldn't say that the, the, there's no... There's the, what, you, what you get in Darren and the occult is used to reinforce is the notion that the, 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 the protagonist is female there is, no, there is really not, not much of a male gaze in the films of Durham. So you've got this very powerful female protagonist who will do as she wills and uses the occult to continue to reinforce and validate that. In Anger, 
Um, the, the occult, to me, appears to be one of the two driving forces for his work. The other is a terrific homoerotic sensibility. And you can't really, taking those two things apart is, and, ends up being really rather futile because anger doesn't, I've talked to him many times about it, and for him, they're absolutely indis, indistinguishable. So, and, and he's, always, um, he's always stayed away from, if you like, queer politics, but said that, look, my films, my films do that for me. I'm not really going to participate, although he's taken advantages of everything that he's achieved. Where he does engage very actively with politics is in Invocation of My Demon Brother, which I haven't really got time to show you today, in 1969, uh, where he's, he's become, if you like, the muse of the counterculture. He's very influential on the Rolling Stone, also on the San Francisco counterculture too. And he's very involved in the protest against the Vietnam War. So, Invocation of My Demon Brother is, is based around... The, the, a, a chain of correspondences which go from the colour red, fire, the archangel Michael, the deity Lucifer, the planet Mars, the Sephira, Gebura, and the Kabbalah, um, which are all about the number five and all about the uh, idea of aggression and destruction in order to create. And in the form of that film, as well as the content, that's what he's doing, he's expressing an absolute howl of rage of protest against Vietnam, but in his, what he's believing um, in the cult system is that, that the making of that work and the exhibiting of it to audiences <coughs> will actually change the political situation. That's how engaged he is. Is that, is that an answer? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to continue from Amaru's interest in the politics mm. and their placement in the avant-garde particularly the Anglo's interest in Lucifer, and there's obviously, particularly in France in the 19th century tradition, people like Baudelaire, yeah. and the interest in Lucifer, not as the satanic, but as the Promethean element. That's exactly it. And I was just wondering, to what extent did that influence New Age spirituality and sort of also a thriving subculture? I mean, was that influential at all, or was, was he more yeah. someone who was reviewed by intellectuals at the time? No, it, it influences the Kant's culture in the 60s massively. I'm not sure about, I, I view New Age spirituality as a kind of slightly later thing, um, and, and probably not so engaged with him, but certainly the counterculture. He's, um, he's the inspiration for the Stones, uh, um, their Satanic Majesty's request. Um, he is involved in designing the cover, he's reputedly the kind of inspiration. His Luciferian mythos is, is um, what's the song, Sympathy for the Devil. Mm. Um, you know, he's is, 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 is very connected with that. And his, his notions of that are, are drawn absolutely from Milton through Baudelaire, etc. But he's reappropriating it. And he's, he, for him, Lucifer is, is, is also a completely sexualized gay deity. So he's reappropriating as he goes in a, in a very creative way, but it's quite wonderful and inspiring. So it's really the inspiration. He, he breaks with the Rolling Stones. Uh, in 1969, Mick Jagger, who's done the soundtrack publication My Demon Brother, cuts off from him after the uh, nightmare concert at Altamont where someone dies. He sort of associates that in his mind with his flirtation with the Luciferian mythos. What he, what he continues to do is influence filmmakers by doing that. And if you've, I don't know if you've seen the performance, but Donald Camel, who co-directed that with Nicholas Rowe, 
it is, is on record as saying that, that anger was his primary influence. You can see it in the film. Is that anything? Yeah. Okay. This might be well, last two questions. Uh, so I'm really fascinated by the way in which you talked about Darren's homosexuality aspects in the film that you were discussing. No, that's anger. Darren's not homosexual. <laughs> Darren's very interesting. Um, she's she's not she's not uh, she's not gay, but she has she is bisexual. And um, when she, the last film that I looked at, uh, their ritual in transfigured time, the the subtext of that, which I didn't really have time to mention, is that she was having an affair with Rita Cristiani at the time. So the protagonist is 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 played partly by Cristiani and partly by Darren, and it's clear from her notes that at that time she viewed herself and, and Christiane as two female halves of, of one being, you know, so, so she's doing that. She was aggressively sexual all her life, and uh, fellow filmmakers like Stan Brackage um, write about that and are quite, were, were, were sometimes quite afraid of her and didn't want, really want to be alone with her for a Brackage. <laughs> but um, there, there is some, um, the, there is in the wider American avant-garde, there is that there is that notion of of the queer and unsexual otherness in a broad sense. And if you look at films by, for example, Ron Rice and Gregory Markopoulos, who are working a bit later at the beginning of the 60s, it's that that is very apparent. And it, it, it begins with with Darren, and then anger is really there. You know, it's a great shining beacon of this stuff. And it culminates very, I think, very orgiastically in the work of Jack Smith. In the early 60s, the, the, the wonderful flaming creatures, you know, which was the only avant garde film to achieve the distinction of being permanently banned. <laughs> Angus work was temporarily banned, and he got various people like Susan Sontag to argue for an important and it was rapidly unbanned. This, is that mm -hmm. makes sense? Yeah, yeah. yeah, definitely. I, I was wondering if Sontag had written on there, actually. Not the time aware. I think we're going to have to go for our last question. <laughs> I only have a small question about the system post image. And yeah. I was wondering if um, this is something he used often, and yes. does always mean losing identity? He, he begins to use it in that film, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. And it's, um, that, that film is worked on really extensively in the printing process. So it's important to understand that for Anger, shooting the film was just the first stage in a really complex process and probably represented, I would say, about the first fifth of that process. So then he goes back and he's superimposing and printing. In that film, we're seeing um, essentially a group, of, a group of invoked deities under the influence of, of um, entheogens, collapsing under the weight of their own mythos, melding into one another, and, and identity is being destroyed. It's not used in, in Invocation of My Demon Brother, it's used in a very different way. It's used to convey that aggressive, geburic idea. There's an image of, G of GIs disembarking from a helicopter in Vietnam, 
which is present throughout the film, but uh, a lot of the time subliminally. You only see it, you're only aware of seeing it about four times during the film, but it's there throughout, at less than three frames uh, of, of, of film. We can't, our, eyes, our eyes can't consciously process, but our subconscious mind takes in. So there, it's used in a different way there, and it's used less in Lucifer Rising, much less. So, no, it's used differently, but it is a characteristic of, of, of the work, for sure. Great, well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Great Work Radio program. The Great Work Radio and blog are features of Jesse Waugh's website and can be accessed at jessiewaugh.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H.com. We look forward to comments submitted to the blog and hope you enjoyed today's program.